already there, and uh, I have for a number of years enjoyed uh, studying the book of Haggai. There are some wonderful truths in it that have been a, a tremendous blessing to me. I, um, when I was uh, going through college, and I went to some, some Christian colleges, Bible colleges, uh, for my college education, there was a... Uh, uh, a strong emphasis on uh, the primary thing. Uh, in fact, uh, they 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 pushed this issue so hard that they they really made it appear to us as college students that our level of spiritual growth or our walk with our our spirituality, if you will, uh, was dependent upon how much we labored and how much we worked. And uh, it was it was almost like if you'll get out here and work and work and work, you'll draw closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a young person, I mean, I'm looking up to men that I, I respected and thought that they were guiding and teaching me the right way and realizing that uh, they had it completely backwards. Our service, our work, is to be a fruit of our heart growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, it was interesting to me. Uh, that during that time where I was struggling with some things and, and it just didn't seem to make sense and it felt like this thing wasn't quite right the way that I was being taught, uh, I came across uh, a message by a fellow and uh, he used the book of Haggai and uh, just went through it uh, chapter by chapter and, and there were some great principles there that really helped to solidify um, the biblical priorities of our life. And rightfully so. In, in fact, the entirety of the book uh, is really uh, the, the thrust of it, the, the main gist of it, is to encourage the nation of uh, Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom specifically, uh, to come back and begin to work on the temple. But he deals with uh, some other things about that. And uh, so I want us to take a look at some of this today. We're not going to do a thorough study of the book, but we do want to do a good survey of it. Uh, Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament, and uh, uh, he deals primarily with the idea of the self-indulgence of the Israelites uh, in contrast to their dedication to do the work of God. And they began to look into themselves and to do their own thing. Uh, Chapter number one, two different times. Uh, God uh, has Haggai write, thus saith the Lord. And any time you see those statements, uh, these are uh, uh, very, very emphatic. They are there for emphasis. They are there to make sure that there is no question at all about what God's mind or heart is on the issue. And he usually, when he makes that statement through one of his prophets, usually it's because he's getting ready to hit the nerve. And um, I use that expression. I don't know if any of y'all have ever had a, a bad toothache with an exposed nerve, but when something hits it, boy, it just lights you up. And there are times in Scripture where, uh, and ought to be times in Scripture, where we come against a truth that really spiritually ought to put its finger on our nerve and ought to bring awareness to it and cause us to be sensitive to that. And um, we find that uh, he's dealing mainly with four different issues in two chapters. 
Uh, there are four little sermonettes, if you will, four different messages that God has sent. The first one uh, that God gives him is dealing with uh, the folks getting back to the rebuilding of the temple. So let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, if you'll remember, God has at this time used Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to uh, capture Judah and bring them into captivity. And uh, they have been that way for uh, a number of years at this point. And God is getting ready to bring some deliverance to them. And some things are happening. And during all of this course of time, uh, we have the story of Nehemiah, who's been given permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. And we've studied Nehemiah extensively here, and we know that story. Along that time was also the ministry of Ezra who came in, and we saw great revival as they rebuilt the walls. And uh, Ezra begins to read the book of the law, and the people uh, repent and turn back to God, and there's a great revival. But the revival is very short-lived. They began... Uh, right after, shortly after uh, rebuilding the walls to rebuild the temple. And they got the foundation done, and because of um, some of the opposition of their enemies and a lot of the ridicule, they were discouraged. And the revival that God used uh, for a number of years there while they began to do the work on the temple uh, was very short-lived. And um, they, they began the work, and about two years later they stopped work on it. Uh, and the foundation was of the temple was there, and it was dormant for a number of years. And so this is the background, the setting, uh, that brings Haggai on the scene. Haggai uh, uh, is uh, used by God to encourage and to kind of point out the self-interest of the nation of Israel. Look uh, in verse number uh, 3 of chapter 1 for a minute. Uh, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now, we're not talking about uh, sealed in the sense of, you know, some of you ladies uh, put things in a bag and you seal it up. We're talking about a sealing of a house. Uh, The ornateness of it, uh, they were focusing on how nice their houses were. And so he says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Speaking of, his, uh, of the temple. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And by the way, that's a wonderful, that is a wonderful truth that God told the nation of Israel. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were so accustomed to their self-interest that they had lost the sensitivity to even recognize that they had it. And by the way, when we get involved in living worldly and in a worldly lifestyle, there may be a pricking of the conscience, but the longer we are involved in that, the less sensitive we become to it. And there comes a point where we need to consider our ways. I'm talking about even people who sit in the pews of our churches every week that carry a King James Bible and uh, spend time in devotions every day. There still are times where we ought to come to God and say, God, help me consider my ways. Let me look into my heart and may you expose things to me. Show me things that I am oblivious to. Because there is that tendency that we become accustomed and we lose uh, the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's conviction over issues that really need to be dealt with in our life. And so he tells them, he says, consider your ways. He says, you have so much and bring in little. 
Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, and bring wood, and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when, I brought, when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because mine house, that is waste, and you run every man unto his own house. So, he says, listen, uh, my hand of blessing, my prospering. If you remember the story back in Nehemiah, how often Nehemiah said, uh, the hand of my God was, was good upon me. He prospered this. He prospered that. Uh, his hand of blessing was on it. And uh, as long as there was obedience, as long as there was a, a following of what God wanted them to do, he had a hand of blessing upon them. But the moment that they began to not follow God, and in this case, it doesn't seem to be a rebellious spirit as much of an apathetic spirit. They just started thinking, I've got more important things to do right now. Uh, my house needs to be dealt with. I've got to deal with some things in my home. And, uh, and they began to let the Lord's house take a back seat. The things of the Lord began to take a back seat. And, uh, and God said, because of that, uh, I do not bless your labors. And in fact, He said, I blow upon them. He said, some of you earn wages. You feel like you're earning wages to put them into a bag of holes. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not uh, filled. You know, and, and the idea that it seems like there's never enough. God's hand of blessing was not on them. And uh, so verse number 10, He says, Therefore the heaven over you has stayed from new, and the earth has stayed from her fruit. And so God, God kind of removes the prosperity that He had blessed them with prior to this during that time of revival under Ezra because of their self-centeredness, their, their egocentric uh, mindset, their self-indulgence, if you will, uh, over their, their things. Uh, by the way, isn't it interesting that even Jesus in His ministry in Matthew chapter number 6 said, But seek ye first what? the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, what was He talking about? The things of life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, where you're going to sleep. He said all these things will be added unto you. And we have that principle shown throughout Scripture. It's illustrated so clearly here in Haggai as the nation of Judah is basically just kind of become apathetic. Uh, they've lost their zeal for the house of God. How often in our lives do we lose our zeal? I, I think it's wonderful to live on that mountaintop, don't you? To, to have the joy, the excitement. Uh, but there are times, are there not, that we lose some of that. Uh, we begin to grow cold or callous to those things. And that's why the Bible over and over again speaks of the idea that there needs to be a stirring up. There needs to be a reviving of our hearts. Uh, because our, our human flesh, our human nature, uh, has that tendency to lose that zeal. And so they had done so. Uh, the second message um, uh, takes place. And by the way, let me just say this. It's interesting, uh, and I want us to see this, the, the, the spirit of the people... When they, were, when they were given this first message, it's kind of a harsh message to them. It's kind of a, hey, you need to consider your ways. You're wrong on this. There's some issues you need to deal with. 
And uh, I want us to look at a couple things here. And verse number 14 of chapter 1, because I think this is a very, very important point that will help us today. And I know this was written a long time ago, but this will help us today. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did the work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. There were two things that I want you to notice here. I want you to notice, first of all, the response of the people. The response of the people. When God brings correction into our life, uh, how we respond is crucial. I know the day we live in, we, we don't use the term conviction very much in our churches anymore. People don't like to use that term conviction. In fact, the modern day uh, vernacular that most people use when God pricks their heart is offended. That offended me. No, it was just conviction. <laughs> it pricked our heart. It didn't make us feel good. And we, we say this because when we say we are offended, then we put the wrongdoing on God's pricking our heart. We put the blame on Him rather than where it needs to be, which is on us. And so when we say that we are offended and we walk out of a teaching time or a preaching time, we say, boy, that really offended me from, uh, from Scripture. How dare the, the preacher say something like that? And he's preaching things from the Word of God. Uh, that, that is conviction, not, not being offended. And we need to understand the difference. How we respond is crucial. Notice in verse number 14, the Bible says that the spirit of Zerubbabel, uh, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, all of these were, according to verse number 14, stirred up. It was stirred up. Where did the obedience begin? In the heart. In the spirit. It was stirred up. And then I want you to notice, not only did they respond correctly, but they were obedient. And by the way, this ought always be the case. When we come to God's Word, there ought to be a stirring of our hearts to show us what is wrong, and there ought to be a yieldedness to say, Lord, I'm willing to be obedient. Notice what he says here, uh, that he says, The Spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they that came, what did they do? The Bible says they did the work in the house of the Lord of hosts their God in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, the second year of Darius the king. Twenty-three days after Haggai preached the message, the people said, Yes, Lord, we're going to do it. Their spirit was stirred, and they were willing to be obedient. Uh, that is something that we can take a lesson from today. When we come to God's Word and there are things in there that we read and we're like, well, I don't like what that says. It, it, it offends me. No, let's just say that's the Holy Spirit convicting me and showing me some things. And I need to have my heart stirred by that. In fact, it ought to bother me. And it ought to bother you. Until we get to the place where we say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to be obedient to it. And uh, so we find that there's a wonderful truth here. Uh, as we get to chapter number 2, the second message is dealing with the glory of the temple. And just to give you, I'm not going to read through all of chapter 2 like we did chapter 1. You can take time to read through that later. Uh, but I will give you the gist of it. Basically, uh, as they began to do the work and they began to build the temple, it was not as ornate. It was not as beautiful as Solomon's temple by any stretch. And some of the old-timers, and by the way, uh, 
I want you to understand this, that more than likely because of some of the dates that we're given here in Haggai and again um, in, uh, in Zechariah, we find that there are uh, some very, very specific dates that probably, more than likely, Haggai was in his, as best we can tell, probably his 70s, maybe even mid-70s, and would have been able to remember Solomon's temple. Even he was understanding of what the temple was like before. More, more than likely, from what we understand of the dates. Uh, and yet there was a, an older generation that was becoming critical uh, of the zeal, the, the newfound zeal of the younger generation who were trying to do their best to rebuild the temple. And so they began to criticize it. And uh, they began in verse number uh, 3 of chapter 2. I do, we'll look at this one. He says, Who is left among uh, you that saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? In other words, they said, This thing is nothing. I know you all are working, but this is nothing like Solomon's temple. And there was discouragement, and there was uh, criticism. Can I, can I help us with something here today? We need to be careful when, when God's people are doing what God has told them to do. And they may not be doing it quite as well as you've done it in the past. Be careful about being critical. Be careful about saying, well, boy, you really should... It's not quite like I... Those type of things. It brings discouragement. And it causes there to be some ridicule. So much so that God has to use Haggai for a second message to tell him in verse number 4, Now be ye strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. By the way, can I help us with this? That's the only reason we need to work. To know that God is with us. We don't need man's approval. We don't need the approval of other Christians. We don't need the approval of other churches. We don't need the approval of other people of like faith who are out here doing a work for the Lord and they, they give or take their approval away from us. The only thing we need to do in serving the Lord is make sure that we are doing everything we know possible to please Him in the labor that we're giving. That's it. And so God comes to Zerubbabel and He says, Listen, uh, don't be discouraged by this. Be strong, for I am with you. I, I, that's the only thing that matters here, Zerubbabel. Don't worry about these older men. Don't worry about these men of, of affluence and men of influence uh, that are influential among the people. The only opinion that mattered in this case was God's. And so he, he encourages uh, uh, Zerubbabel, and this is the, the, the gist of the... Uh, of the second message was to bring encouragement for them to remain steadfast and to let them know, and this is interesting, to let them know that the glory of this second temple, this latter house, was going to be greater than the glory of the first house. I've said this before in preaching on this in this book. The glory of the temple that Solomon built was not in its ornateness. Uh, some people mistook it for that. In fact, these people did. They thought that the glory of the temple was because of how beautiful the temple was. Really, the glory of the temple was because of what? Anybody remember? God's presence 
in the temple. And even though this second temple was not quite as wonderful as the first temple, uh, God's presence is there. And it is more gloried, according to this, that there's more glory in the second temple than in the first. Notice um, in verse number, uh, let's see here, uh, make sure I'm in, uh, verse number 9. Verse number 9 of chapter 2, he says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, there are a couple of things that are missing in this second temple. Uh, several things. First of all, it's not as ornate. It's not as big as Solomon's temple. But it was the best that the people could do, and they put forth their best effort. And God did prosper, and God did bless them. Another thing that is not mentioned here, and, and is quite significantly missing here, is there's no indication that the Ark of the Covenant was in this temple. And quite possibly, by this time, the Ark had either been hidden or, or lost. And, uh, and you don't hear any further about the Ark of the Covenant from this point on, uh, nor do you hear it here. So more than likely, uh, the Ark was not in the, in the temple. Uh, in fact, uh, the Jewish Talmud goes so far as to say that it was not historically, that they knew that it was not in the temple. They also make a claim that the Shekinah glory of God was not in this temple. Now, wait a minute. God promised that the glory of this second temple was going to be greater than the glory of the first temple. And we know that the glory was not based on the ornateness of the temple, but on God's presence. And yet His ark and His Shekinah glory are not in the second temple, but they were in the first how does, that, how does that reconcile? Because an event takes place during the lifespan of this second temple that did not take place in the first temple. And that is the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ walked into this temple in fulfillment of the plan of redemption. And the fullness of the glory of God that is given to Him as our Savior and as our Redeemer filled this temple on numerous occasions. His presence was there. And uh, it's interesting that God, even though uh, there's no indication that the ark was there or that His Shekinah glory was there, there certainly was the indication that He personally in the flesh as God's Son was there. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, we uh, we often uh, worry and wonder why there are some people who are more gifted and more talented, seemingly more uh, fruitful in ministry, perhaps in their walk with God, than we are. Can I tell you this? Uh, it should not be a measure of how much we do for the Lord, but how much our hearts are yielded doing for the Lord. We'll let God deal with the fruit. We'll let God deal with whatever glory comes from our labor and our service. It's His glory anyway. We just need to be obedient. We just need to be yielded. And we may not. We may not be as talented as someone else. We may not have the same knowledge as someone else and be able to, to quote Scriptures the way some men do and be able to uh, give depth of detail of culture and historical events of Scripture like some men do. 
but we can be just as faithful as that person. And we can walk with God, and we can have that depth of, uh, of uh, fervency in our service and yieldedness to Him. And let God deal with the increase. I, I was so, so disillusioned uh, going through college that the emphasis in so many ways seemed to be uh, whatever we do uh, will bear the fruit and that uh, we need to be doing more and more and more so that there's more and more and more fruit. Can I tell you this? Certainly 